internet and look up Salter.org, O-R-G, you will see a website dedicated to selling Salters. Their slogan is one that I like. It says this. It says, because the Psalms are meant to be sung. Because the Psalms are meant to be sung. And I like that for a couple different reasons. One of all, well, first of all, I think it's right in a sense that this was the original purpose uh, for which they were composed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That uh, they were part of the worship of the church uh, 3,000 years ago. I mean, you want to talk about, yeah, you sing the oldies. Uh, you sing real oldies when you sing the Psalms, at least in terms of the content that is there. Of course, the tunes are more recent. Uh, but nevertheless, that was uh, one of the first purposes that God gave us the Psalms. But secondly, um, it does also present some challenges particularly for the preacher, because this is, in a sense, musical poetry uh, that we are dealing with. Now, there are many different genres in the Bible and many different ways that God communicates. Sometimes it's didactic. Uh, sometimes it's, it is just plain old prose letters. Sometimes it's in parables. Sometimes it's prophecies. Sometimes it's apocalyptic literature. Uh, all kinds of genres. And sometimes it is poetic. And that's what we're dealing with here in these psalms. Now, one of the challenges, whenever we read the psalms and we want to preach the psalms or teach the psalms, is we have to remember the original genre, that it's poetry. And because it's poetry, it tends to have a quality about it that is not like, say, uh, an epistle that Paul would write, where you would read line by line, precept by precept. And it's more that you get a bunch of imageries thrown at you in just a few verses. And so the Psalms are often creating a pattern or a picture for us as, as we sing them and as, as we read them and meditate upon them. There are many different images that are moving rapidly before us as we go through these 12 verses. So what I want to do is try and give you, I think, some of the main pictures and ideas that this psalm wants to communicate to us. Now, I believe that one of the overall themes in this psalm is the glory and the majesty of God, especially in his presence as he draws near to his people. The glory and the majesty of of God as he draws near to his people. And then I think you have a couple different responses in this psalm from that theme. And so I want to talk, first of all, from verses 1 through 6 about this idea of the glory and majesty of God as he draws near in his presence and then some of the responses that we find conveyed in this song as well. Now, in verse 1 through 6, let me just reread a little bit of that. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Now, what do you see in that? What are some of the things that stand out? Well, again, these lines are very fluid and the imagery is rapidly changing. But we see clouds, dark clouds. We see darkness, 
throne, fire, lightning, the earth quaking, mountain melting, glory and majesty. That is what I would argue that we see. 6b, and all the peoples have seen his glory. The, the psalmist is giving us a picture here of something of the essence of what it's like when God comes near to his people. Now, I think he is drawing heavily in these first six verses on the imagery of Sinai, which, of course, was one of the great redemptive events in the Old Testament after the people of God came out of Egypt. God met with them on Sinai and God came down in thick darkness and clouds that the psalmist is speaking of here. He came in lightnings and tremblings. The people trembled at the word of God as they heard his voice. And, and they even said, this is too much for us. And, and the sense of majesty and glory was overwhelming to the people of God. In fact, it was so overwhelming, they told Moses, Moses, you've got to go up. You have to do this. <coughs> we, we, and, and God was even pleased with that. And, and he was pleased that that would be their response. But I think what the psalmist would have us understand here is that our senses, our affections, our sanctified imagination is to be impressed here with the, the glory of God, the living God drawing near to us. And I want to suggest to you that we may not have these external manifestations that are poetically conveyed to us in these first six verses here. We may not have the thick clouds of darkness that hovered over Sinai or the idea of the fire going out and burning up adversaries such as Korah in the rebellion or the lightnings or the, even the, the earthquakes. Uh, but I would say this, that we do nevertheless, because Jesus Christ has accomplished the fulfillment of the law, remember that the law was given at Sinai and Jesus walked in obedience to that law, and Jesus paid the penalty for that law. And now that he is in heaven, he has given us the spirit. And the spirit, though we no longer have the outward, external senses and manifestations, our senses stimulated in the way that they were in the Old Testament, I believe he's given us something incredibly more powerful, and that is the spirit of God. That the spirit applies the word to your heart and you inwardly, your inner man senses the glory. And your inner man senses the majesty and the power of God. Let me give you an example from the Bible. In the, in the day of Pentecost, what do we have? We have the Spirit of God coming in power. Now again, this is, I have to emphasize, this is when God comes near to his church in power. And when, 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 where do we see that in the New Testament? One of the greatest manifestations of it was seen in the book of Acts, especially on that first day when the Spirit, there's a church, not much bigger than ours, about the same size as ours, really, 120 people praying, 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 praying for the Spirit of God, waiting upon God's promise, seeking the Lord, making intercession, calling upon the Lord to come down and, and to give us uh, his presence and God in the fulfillment to the promise that Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem and I'll send you the spirit. What does he do? He, in answer to the prayers and, and according to his promise, the Holy Spirit is then given to the church. And the church begins to 
operate begins to work in, in the presence and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God, what does the Spirit of God do? But the Spirit of God begins to convict the audience. As people begin to gather around because of the rushing wind sound and the cloven tongues of fire that are resting upon the apostles' heads, and they begin to speak in tongues and preach the gospel in those foreign languages, and the people hear the gospel. And what is the reaction? The reaction is one of conviction. It's one uh, of sensing the majesty of God, the holiness of God. And the people begin to feel undone. Now, these are religious people. These are, these are people who we would have considered good Jews who are going to the temple on, on Pentecost. They're there for one of the three high holy days of the year. And, and yet they are undone when the nearness of God comes, when the Holy Spirit draws near to the church and the church is preaching in the power of the Spirit as the people begin to ask out loud. Now, I have heard that sometimes uh, when the Spirit of God is working powerfully in churches, that sometimes people really will speak out loud, and they don't even realize what they're doing. Sinclair Ferguson has said he has seen it, where he's in the midst of preaching. And the Spirit of God comes so powerfully and draws so closely and nearly to a particular individual in the congregation that they, they, they respond to the sermon out loud. That when a rhetorical question is, is asked, they, they literally just lose their, their, their sense of themselves for that moment and, and they answer it out loud or they say, what must I do to be saved? And we read about that even in times of revival. Sometimes uh, people have that same kind of response. <coughs> so I think here when, in this psalm, he's reminding us of what it's really like, the awe that we are to feel and the wonder when, when God draws near. And I think this is really something that we should pray for as we pray for revival. And we, we pray, what are we praying for? We are praying for God to come near. We're praying for God to do a, a great work. We're, we're praying for God to bless the, the sermon and the preaching so that the sermons have more unction to them, that the sermons have more power to them, and the sermons seem... Uh, more effectual uh, upon our thinking and upon the, the way we view the, the subject of, of God and the warmth that it brings to our affections, the warmth that it brings uh, to other people, the way we begin to feel about our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we feel uh, a greater sense of unity, a greater sense of love, the way we feel towards people who are outside the church, a greater sense of pity, a greater sense of compassion, a greater sense of urgency. All of these things uh, come upon the, the church when the church is uh, when excuse me when the spirit draws near to the church and I think this is something we should pray for look at that if you look at verse one the psalmist begins by saying this is a, a, a point to rejoice over he says the Lord reigns let the earth rejoice let the many islands be glad and then he begins to describe the the coming of the Lord in all of his manifestations here in the following verses 2 through 6. And I think it's a good point to be taken, that we rejoice in the nearness of God, that he would draw near and that we would be glad about it, and that we would delight ourselves uh, in the fact that the Lord is, is an incredible God, uh, that we appreciate that. 
Now, there are a couple of responses, I think, in this psalm to the nearness of God, and I've, I've described them somewhat from the book of Acts, but let's look at them here a little bit from the psalm itself. The first response, I think, is repentance among idolaters. That's how I'm choosing to classify it. Repentance among idolaters. Look at verse 7. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Now notice that first part. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images. What is the response? How did we leave it in verse 6? We left it, all the peoples have seen his glory. God drew near to his people. And the whole earth saw that. The whole earth saw it in Jesus Christ. Christ was lifted up. And I will draw all men to myself, said Jesus. And what is the response among sinners? A sense of shame. The centurion. Surely this was the man of God. Surely this was the son of God, he said. The people who go away, some even beating their breast. A sense of shame at what has happened. That we, like sheep, have all turned astray. That each has turn to serve idols and graven images. And there's a sense that we have been fools and that we should smite our thigh because of what we've done. We have, we have been foolish in serving things that were made by men rather than serving the true and the living God. God has drawn near and we recognize the foolishness of our hearts. When God draws near, the worthlessness of our idols becomes apparent very, very quickly. We serve money and pleasure and selfish ambition. We make idols of our family or our wealth, our social position in the community, our reputation, our homemade righteousness, our false views of Jesus, and then God comes. And all that idolatry is seen for what it is. It's just like it was in the Old Testament when they would make Literal idols carving them out and setting them up on a pedestal and bowing down and worshiping them. And they are worthless. Eyes but cannot see, ears cannot hear, mouths but cannot speak. And so even at the end of time when Jesus comes back in Revelation, we see when, when God will finally manifest himself uh, in the return of Jesus Christ, what is the reaction among unbelievers? They cry out to the mountains to fall upon them. Because of the wrath of the Lamb. Because, why? Because their idols are worthless in the nearness of God. When God draws near their idols, their idols cannot save them. Their idols can do nothing. We see it in the Old Testament too. You remember the story when the Philistines won a particular battle and they took the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that story, boys and girls? And, and they, they took it back to their, to their God's temple, Dagon, Dagon. The statue of Dagon was there and they brought the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon and they celebrated their great victory. And then they woke up the next morning and what happens? Dagon's on his face before the Ark. Well, this isn't going to look good. CNN's going to cover this. Let's put this thing back up and they put this back up. And the next morning, Dagon falls down again before the Ark and this is embarrassing and so they put it back up. And next time Dagon falls and his neck is broken and his hands are broken. And God just causes Dagon 
to fall before the ark. And what do we have in our text here? Notice what it says. It, at least in the NAS, it translates it this way in 7c. Worship him, all you gods. That even the gods are to worship him. Even the, the creation made by men is to bow down before the true and the living God. People by nature love their idols and will not give them up unless the Spirit of God causes people to turn from them. But look, the Spirit of God can do that. If you look at verse 8 and 9, Zion heard this and was glad and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O God. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And so the people hear of People turning from their idols and the gods worshiping the Lord and the people of God rejoice. Even as we learn in the Gospels that the conversion of just even one sinner turning from his idols is a work of grace. And it causes angels to worship God and to praise God. The idea that even one lone sinner uh, who is addicted to himself or herself or her idols or his idols. And by the grace of God, they are delivered from the enslavement to worshiping things of their own making. And they serve the living God. And the Bible says the angels in heaven rejoice because it's a great and wonderful work of God, even in the conversion of but a solitary sinner. So that is the first response, repentance. There's a second response, and that is rejoicing and Blessing among God's people. Rejoicing and blessing among God's people. That's the final section, verses 10 through 12 tonight. Notice it begins, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Now, the first exhortation back in verse 7, you'll notice was for those who were serving graven images. Let them be ashamed. But now, he turns his attention not to the idolaters, but now he's turning his attention to God's people. And he's saying, you who are God's people, you who already are serving the Lord, there's, there's an exhortation for you, too, from this, that you hate wickedness. You hate unrighteousness. God draws near in majesty and glory and power. And one of the things that whenever God revives his church, whenever the Spirit of God is poured out in great power upon a congregation, one of the things it does is it, it quickens the faith of those who are already in Jesus Christ and it gives them a renewed sense of commitment, rededication to Jesus Christ, renewed zeal. And because of the renewed zeal and commitment to Christ, they begin to hate evil. Now, the evil they begin to hate the most, I believe, is their own. That it's their own wickedness and their own unrighteousness that they begin to loathe the most and most fiercely. And they sometimes uh, hate it uh, with such hatred, they pray and pray for the Lord to mortify it, for the Lord to vanquish it, for the Lord to put it to death, as John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will kill you. And so the psalmist is saying, I think the same thing, hate evil, you who love the Lord. Don't coddle it. Don't flirt with it. Don't, don't uh, see how close you can get to it, but hate it. Abstain from it. Even the garment stained with sin, says the Bible. That we loathe it. And we loathe it most particularly not in others, but in ourselves. 
that we see ourselves as the chief of sinners, that we see ourselves as the one who is in need of God's mercy the most, that we see ourselves like the publican saw himself before God. God, have mercy on me, the sinner, the definitive sinner, not just a sinner, the sinner, uh, and that we turn from it, we hate it, and we're ashamed of it. We say, Lord, give me grace. But we see also blessing for the people of God. There's rejoicing here too. There's joy even in, as God draws near to his people. It says here in 10b, he preserves the souls of his godly ones. I've heard and read in, in church history that many times ministers who uh, saw revivals and saw God draw near in power, uh, it was the people that often were converted in those revivals that decades later they could count on the most when, when the nearness of God was not present with his church, when things were dry and when they were in a barren season, he could still count on those who had been converted, who knew those seasons of refreshing back in their youth and they were still strong in prayer and they were still abiding in the Lord when others may have fallen away. He preserves the souls of his godly ones when he comes close. He delivers 10C. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. He preserves them from evildoers and and protects them uh, even uh, from those who persecute him. Not a hair on our head can fall apart from the will of God. Don't fear men, says Jesus. Don't fear what they can do to the body. Fear him who can kill the body and throw the soul into eternal hell. And then verse 11 and 12. Light is sown like seed for the righteous. Uh, light is used as imagery for illumination and for uh, the Spirit of God giving understanding of His Word. And here the idea that light is spread out and, and people have a greater understanding of the Word and in response to that they, they have joy, they have gladness, they are upright in heart. And we also know of this too. When, when this Holy Spirit comes in power, uh, people grow hungry for the Bible. One of the, one of the results we see from times of refreshing by the Spirit is there's a hunger for the Bible. I know of a minister who told the story of a young woman who was converted to Jesus Christ and as she came to know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, um, one of the manifestations of that was she could not get enough of the Bible. Just could not get enough. Uh, read the Bible from cover to cover. And just was so hungry for the truth of God. Why? Because, well, because God had illuminated her mind, her understanding, and shown her things uh, about himself that she previously was ignorant of and, and did not know when she was living in darkness and sin. Now that she's converted, and she had an amazing appetite for the things of Scripture. One of the great blessings of of the Spirit of God working in our life is when we hunger and thirst. And don't you find that to be true in your life? I know I do. And when I'm doing well, I find myself, I want to read the Bible. And I want to hear sermons. And I, I, I put in the CD or I listen on my iPod to preaching. I want to hear preaching. And I want to, I want to read the Bible. I want, want to get my McShane reading done. 
you know. All right. Finally, there's an, not only an abundance of light, but there is great gladness. Uh, great gladness. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Be glad. There's great joy when God draws near in his church. Uh, again, uh, one of the fruits of the Spirit is, is joy, and we see this many times in new converts. A tremendous sense of joy and liberation that they've come to know Jesus Christ. They've come to an assurance that their sins really are forgiven. And they have a tremendous joy. Many of you probably can remember a time when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and your thoughts were flooded with, uh, with Christ. Your thoughts were flooded with a sense of joy. I can remember it. I, I, was, I was about 20 years old. I was in college. And it was in between, actually, uh, spring semester and fall semester. So I was back home. And I remember, you know, working. I, uh, that summer, I was uh, working as a bag boy that summer. And, uh, but I can just remember, you know, taking out the groceries, but having this tremendous sense of joy at, at knowing Jesus Christ. And when I get off work, you know, wanting to read the Bible. And, and I would sit down with pad and paper and pen, and I would turn on our local Christian radio station. And Charles Stanley came on. And then after him, Dr. Paul Walker. And then after him, I can't, can't remember, but I, I could look back. I probably I still have all those notes as I sat in my room and listened to the sermons and took the notes down and, and uh, was, was learning and going to the Christian bookstore and scanning the shelves to see what they had. A uh, tremendous sense of joy at uh, my newfound faith. Everything seemed new uh, when I came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Everything seemed new. I think I've told you this is really weird but it's true that uh, trees i noticed trees all of a sudden i you know of course i'd seen trees you know for the previous 19 years but i thought wow look at the trees you know and, and just the glory of god seemed everywhere to me uh, because i had this new life in jesus christ now i understood who made the world now i understood what it's what life is all about it was about serving God, knowing God. And uh, if, if, if this seems a little foreign to anybody here tonight, you know, let me invite you to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, if you've never really known what I'm talking about, never known the gladness and the joy and the hunger for the Bible, uh, if you've never known what it's like to have a sense of assurance that my sins are forgiven, my slate is, is clean, that uh, to, to know the joy of, wow, I, I cannot wait to go to church. To maybe to check the foundations of where you are and say, has God really drawn near to me yet? Has God ever really come to me in thunder and lightning and flame of fire and trembling and all the descriptive and poetic ways that the psalmist is portraying it here in verses 1 through 6. Have I had any personal experience with that? And has it ever caused me to become ashamed of idolatry or ever given me a desire to be glad in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me say to you, 
that Jesus Christ is ready and willing. He's a strong and able Savior. And the things that are spoken of in this psalm are a reality in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the yes and amen to what's written here in the Old Testament. And so these, these concepts are not really foreign to Christian experience. It's a poetic way of saying this is what the Christian life is like. To know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is to know life and the power and presence of God. Amen. Let's pray.